conversation about the weather, wrote the Irish poet Oscar Wilde, is the last refuge of the unimaginative. And while he presumably had old English habits of polite conversation chiefly in mind, Wilde may nevertheless have been dismayed to see conversation about the weather utterly dominating both the national and international discourse today. You'll pardon the tedious pun, I hope, but with the COP26 summit now well underway in what's been a sunny, if stubbornly unwarmed Glasgow, climate change is currently the hottest topic of the day. As you'll have seen on your TV screens, scores of world leaders and their carbon-guzzling entourages were airlifted into Scotland's second city earlier this week to try to hammer out some kind of agreement, any kind of agreement, on global emissions. And these summits are a strange old business, a heady mix of tedious backroom negotiation and breathless warnings of Armageddon, interspersed by the odd sermon from an ageing celebrity like David Attenborough or Jeff Bezos or the Queen. We've had big moments for sure, including important commitments from India on the use of fossil fuels and from Brazil on deforestation. But will any of these leaders actually stick to their words? And is any of this actually going to be enough? It's very positive, but we need to go further. The science is now telling us we have to halve our emissions by 2030. This is Boris Johnson's COP26 spokeswoman and former press secretary, Allegra Stratton speaking to us from the summit late on Wednesday. This important COP in 2021, with eight years to go, is so critical because if we can get the lower carbon technology spread out as widely as possible across lots of different countries, then we can begin to give ourselves a fighting chance of limiting temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. So what you heard over the 48 hours of the World Leaders' Summit that um, has just drawn to a close was a lot of progress, but we have more to do. But if the scale of the looming catastrophe is as serious as politicians keep saying, why do they find it so hard to agree? I think this is a really challenging job for the international community. When Alex Sharma started being COP president-designate, I think it's 18 months ago now, 30% of the world was covered by net zero targets. Now, day three of COP26, that's at... 90%. That's pretty amazing to have tripled. But equally, we still have more work to do. The 2050 strategies are further away. What we have to do is have countries coming forward with nearer term plans for 2030, because the first job we have is to halve emissions by 2030. So it's really, really challenging stuff. None of this, of course, is very new. Since man-made climate change first emerged as a matter of real global concern in the 1980s, the same old rows have been breaking out again and again about the scale of the problem and the speed at which we need to react. And long before there was man-made climate change, there was just climate change. And rapid shifts in global weather patterns could be just as disastrous to previous human societies as they threatened to be in the current century and beyond. So how have politicians addressed these sorts of crises in the past? How did societies respond when they had no choice but to try to adapt? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're exploring the politics of climate change, from the end of the Ice Age in 15,000 BC 
right through to the end of this week in Glasgow in 2021 and wondering where on earth we go from here. Okay, so we're going to start this one way back. I've always thought it's good to crowbar a bit of historical context into these podcasts where possible. We've done Churchill, we've done Bismarck, we've even done a bit of ancient Greece. But if we're going to talk about human societies being impacted by climate change, then this week we really ought to kick things off in the Ice Age. Or, to be more accurate, at the very end of it. The Great Ice Age, as it's called, actually had nine or more glaciations, cold periods, intervened by warmer periods. This is Brian Fagan, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of numerous books on the history of the climate. I spoke to him via a rather crackly Zoom line from his home, just north of L.A., He was kind of surprised to be asked to come on a podcast about Westminster politics, but hey, we're a broad church, and he's a properly interesting guy. The last Ice Age glaciation ended about 15,000 years ago. It was obviously a gradual process, but the warm-up was fairly rapid, and the adaptation was extraordinary. For example, sea levels 20,000 years ago were 300 feet, 91 metres lower than they are today. North America was joined to Alaska, and horror of horrors, the North Sea was dry land, and England was joined to the continent. (laughs) But seriously, this was a very, very different world. There was Arctic steppe all the way up to Scandinavia. The Baltic Sea did not exist. It started off as a glacial lake, and then eventually it became an ocean. Dramatic changes in geography, and that obviously affected human societies. Now, the science is complicated, but in simple terms, the driving force behind the end of the Ice Age was a slow and predictable shift in the Earth's orbit. Over a few thousand years, the Earth's temperature warmed by roughly four or maybe even six degrees centigrade, which is, by the way, not far off the worst predictions of what man-made climate change could look like over the next century. The impact then was immense. Most of the glaciers melted, sea levels rose hundreds of feet, parts of the planet were flooded, while others opened up to human habitation. Our ancestors, still living nomadic lifestyles in small hunter-gatherer societies, had no choice but to adapt. The big weapon that our predecessors had, before about 5,000 years ago, was mobility. They had a drought, they could move. There was a flood, they could move. And one of the most fascinating things about the end of the Ice Age is that people began to move north, following reindeer initially, and other Arctic animals, and then they adapted to forests, and they went to coasts and began to fish a lot. And fishing became very important. So you kind of adapted. And the classic case is the North Sea, which is known to geologists as Doggerland because of the Dogger Bank. And there, literally in a lifetime, and a lifetime was maybe 28, was not as long as ours. Both you and I would be dead a long time ago. But the landscape changed. You might have a canoe landing with an ice bay. Maybe 10 years later, it was gone. So you had to be very adaptable. 
And when the North Sea filled, people just moved to higher ground. Some people may have died. They estimate between eight and 9,000 people, maybe more. So humans have been forced to abandon their homelands to warming climates and rising sea levels before. Although it's probably a little easier to do if you're a wandering nomad than someone accustomed to 21st century life with your fixed-rate mortgage and your neighbourhood WhatsApp group. The other fascinating thing about the end of the Ice Age is that it wasn't a constant warming. There's this crazy period called the Younger Dryas. Yeah, me neither when the planet was abruptly plunged back into freezing temperatures over the course of just a few decades. This was a global shift in temperatures at the sort of pace we're on course for today. The Langetrias is named after an Arctic plant. It seems that it started with a huge glacial lake in North America. About half of North America was covered with huge ice sheets up to 20,000, 15,000 years ago. But these gradually retreated. And then around 11,000 years ago, so much cold, fresh water coasted into the Atlantic that it shut down the uploading of the Gulf Stream. And the result was the Gulf Stream shut down and bingo, we got cold weather. And this lasted for a thousand years. A thousand years? talk about a nasty cold snap. Temperatures in some areas fell by up to 10 degrees C in just a few decades, plunging the planet straight back into the Ice Age for another millennium. It's an interesting lesson in the sorts of unexpected consequences that can happen once the climate starts to change. Also, the film buffs amongst you may have spotted that this is basically the plot of the ludicrous 2004 disaster movie, The Day After Tomorrow. Although in Hollywood, the deep freezing of the planet takes roughly 20 minutes. Anyway, the good news for prehistoric humans was that the planet did eventually warm up again. Or at least, it was good news on some parts of the planet. Equally rapidly, the uh, Gulf Stream came back and it warmed up again. And the effect of this away from the ice sheets wasn't like Europe. It was bitter cold, it was drought. And the drought cause people to move together and so on. So we think that actually, probably drought had a fairly strong influence. Drought is something that you return to again and again in in your latest book. You talk about a a mega drought around sort of 2000 BC, which goes on for hundreds of years, particularly in the Middle East. And we see farmers fleeing, cities abandoned, wars. This was a really dramatic, disruptive event. It, among other things, contributed to the implosion of ancient Egypt. There were huge effects in the eastern Mediterranean. Ancient Egypt had floods which failed on the Nile, which is almost unheard of. You get less rain, less floods, less agriculture, less food. And this happened for a, a long time in the late Old Kingdom of Egypt, about 2100 BC. That literally made the state fall apart. What saved it was that the local provincial governors realized the issue was local and they secured their frontiers, they rationed food, they suppressed social protests and the country eventually recovered and was unified again by force. But it required strong local leadership at the time to stop a a total collapse. Yes. One of the big things I've learned from this is one word, leadership, leadership, leadership. 
strong leadership. That is very often what gets people out of these difficulties. Huh. A simple lesson there for the great and the good up in Glasgow this week. Because what's very clear is that even in ancient and prehistoric times, the impact of climate change was utterly stark. Flooding, mass migration, crop failure, starvation, social unrest. Something to look forward to if our strong leaders make a mess of the next few years. Still, let's not be too gloomy. Climate change hasn't all been bad. In the medieval period, the climate again swung back and forth, at one point giving the Northern Hemisphere an unexpected and frankly much needed warming spell, lasting a glorious 300 years. What a time to be alive. It was a period of quite a lot of unusually warm summers. And this, of course, inevitably transferred, this being the Middle Ages, into pictures by Bruegel of people gathering harvests and so on. You got the stereotype. Because the point about 1000 AD, which is the height of the medieval war, was that something like 95% of all Europe lived from one harvest to the next. And malnutrition was commonplace and so on and so forth. So it was a stressful sort of way to live. And the medieval warmth had probably reduced the stress somewhat, increased food surpluses. But you got the beginnings of cathedral building and so on, a great deal going on. And that was its real impact. It wasn't that dramatic. The dramatic one was the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age was the most recent big shift in global temperatures, a brutal cold snap starting in the 14th century and lasting several hundred years. The causes are disputed, but the impact on society was profound. The Little Ice Age, and the name is perhaps a little inaccurate, is considered by some people to have been the biggest climate anomaly since the Ice Age, except for humanly caused global warming, which started in the Industrial Revolution. It, of course, again, is a stereotype of, ah, Europe went into a deep freeze, there were fairs on the Thames, which is true, there were in the 17th century. It was an extremely volatile time. There were periods of beautiful summers, and there were periods of suffering. Again, in a continent where subsistence was very uncertain. You got a number of years which were horrible. You got food riots, you got social unrest. But the climate change we're witnessing today is obviously of a very different nature to that which has gone before. For one, the predicted pace of it is extraordinary. If the very worst forecast proved correct, we could be looking at a shift of perhaps four degrees centigrade over the course of a century the sort of radical change which would normally take thousands of years, at least. And secondly, of course, scientists almost universally agree that today's changing climate is not just happening to humans, but being triggered by us and our industrial age activities. This idea of man-made global warming had been kicking around parts of the scientific community for much of the 20th century, but only began to crystallise in the 1970s and 80s, before being dragged into the mainstream of international politics by surely the least likely eco-warrior prime minister you could imagine, until this new pangolin-hugging version of Boris Johnson suddenly emerged anyway. We now know, too, that great damage is being done to the ozone layer 
by the production of halons and chlorofluorocarbons. Famously, Margaret Thatcher was one of the first leaders to raise the alarm about climate change on the global stage. She made a series of big speeches on the subject, starting with a groundbreaking address to the Royal Society in 1988. It is possible, Thatcher said, that with all these enormous changes, concentrated into such a short period of time, we've unwittingly begun a massive experiment with the system of this planet. She spoke of greenhouse gases, of a global heat trap, of the danger of one degree's warming per decade. In retrospect, it was a landmark moment. It came from, firstly, the fact that she had a scientific training. She was very interested in science. This is the Conservative MP, John Whittingdale, who worked as Thatcher's political secretary in Downing Street during her later years in power. Her training was as a chemist. She liked to meet and talk to scientists. I once went with her to a gathering of the Royal Society where she you know, was absolutely gripped by talking to scientists about the research that they were undertaking. And actually, there was also an advisor she had who helped her with those big speeches and he was one of the first people to really flag up and he was called Crispin Tickell. Sir Crispin Tickell, a man blessed with a Dickensian name almost on a par with my personal favourite, Sir Eric Pickles, was a career diplomat whose interest in conservation had been piqued in an early role overseeing the British Antarctic territories. As Thatcher's ambassador to the UN in the late 1980s, it was Tickell who pressed upon her the body of growing evidence that CO2 emissions were starting to cause an alarming shift in the climate. In actual fact, the first issue which she identified, I think even earlier, was the threat to the ozone layer. And that is something which you know, we did recognise and take action against. But global warming, which is a much bigger challenge was something which she flagged up as being something that we would have to address, even though at that time, obviously, the evidence was still much more in dispute and we hadn't seen some of the sort of events which have shown that this is a very serious challenge to the future of humanity. And as a young Conservative thinking about, I don't know, elections and the party faithful, are you listening to this thinking... Not really sure this is what you need to be speaking about. I think that there is now far, far greater recognition that this is a very, very serious challenge which has to be addressed. I think when Margaret Thatcher first raised it, there was much more scepticism about whether or not there really was a, a significant threat or whether this wasn't some sort of I know, batty idea that the scientists had come up with without very much evidence. All of that now has been removed. So, you know, in a sense, it was... Quite brave of her to articulate it at that time when there wasn't the amount of evidence that obviously now exists. Thatcher's campaign culminated with a major speech at the UN General Assembly in 1989, where she told world leaders it was time for urgent, multilateral action. That reducing and eventually stopping the emission of CFCs is one positive thing we can do about the menacing accumulation of greenhouse gases. We should work to secure worldwide agreements on ways to cope with the effects of climate change, the thinning of the ozone layer and the loss of precious species. In the years that followed, the issue of global warming was cemented as one of the greatest challenges of our age, much to the dismay of those who opposed radical action. After the break... 
We'll look at the subsequent three decades of political struggle over the climate and at how the same circular arguments look set to re-emerge in the years ahead. Stay with us. We hope you're enjoying the first episode of Season 4 of Westminster Insider. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels and the host of Political Europe's other podcast, EU Confidential, where we tackle the big political stories playing out in Brussels and around the EU. This week, we also look at the issue of climate change in conversation with our reporters in Glasgow. This issue is at the top table of global politics now and it's not going to go away. We also hear from one of Europe's most successful tech entrepreneurs, Irishman John Collison, the co-founder of payments platform Stripe, about the European startup landscape. But, you know, this is the magic of the EU, right? It's like a messy place and there's lots of member states with different cultures and things like that. That's why we all love Europe so much. It's that you have so much variety. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe or follow EU Confidential wherever you're listening to this podcast. It was three years after Thatcher's big speech to the UN that the world finally came together to pledge action on the climate in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. Thatcher had by this stage been forced from power, of course, but her successor at the so-called Earth Summit joined with more than 150 other nations to sign a treaty committing to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Those at the convention agreed to meet annually at a so-called Conference of the Parties, or COP, to thrash out how this new global target would be met. And at the 1998 COP summit in Kyoto, Japan, nations agreed a deal to actually start cutting carbon emissions for the first time. It was a seminal moment for the planet, but almost immediately, politics came to bear. The US Congress refused to ratify the treaty amid concern about the impact on the American economy. Yeah, it was really about jobs and money. I remember when George Bush Sr. went to the Rio Earth Summit, he made this quote about the American way of life is non-negotiable. And I think that was the kind of inspiration for that mass rejection of the Kyoto Protocol. This is Richard Black, the BBC's former science and environment correspondent and a veteran of countless COP summits. They didn't want, across the Senate particularly, they didn't want any constraints put on the US ability to, uh, to evolve in the way it wanted to. In a sense, the US rejection of Kyoto was the start of a new movement, pushing back against the drive to cut emissions. On both sides of the Atlantic, small but vociferous groups of politicians, business leaders and media figures led campaigns which questioned and sometimes rubbished the climate science. Black has written a book, Denied, charting what he dubs the rise and fall of climate contrarianism. So I think there were a number of reasons that were responsible for the rise of this movement, which really happened, I suppose, during the early 2000s. I think part of it undoubtedly has been, you know, the stoking of dissent from oil companies and gas companies and coal companies. So this is all well documented. I actually don't think that was the primary cause in the UK. I think it definitely was in the US and probably Australia too. But in the UK, I think it was more of a, an intellectual exercise. People who believed in a, a totally free market economy with a minimum of state intervention looked at what might have to happen in terms of solving climate change. And they didn't like the fact that the state would have to intervene in all kinds of markets. When you read the writings of people like 
Nigel Lawson, it's very much about uh, which school of economic thought you belong to. So the economist Hayek really preaches in economic terms that you shouldn't intervene, you have to adapt to whatever happens. And it seems to me that some of the UK contrarians have taken this and just brought it into their thinking on climate change, even though Hayek, of course, wasn't writing about climate change or anything like this. And I think there's probably a third element, to be honest, is that, of course, climate science has evolved incredibly rapidly and is far more sophisticated beast now than it was 15 or 20 years ago. And back then, I think it was, you know, possible to raise questions about large chunks of the of the science. And scientists did. They had these debates and some of them weren't that convinced that there really were major risks ahead. And I think it's, you know, really only the last sort of six, seven years, probably, that, that it's solidified so much that you can say, yeah, we really, we're absolutely sure now that we do have major risks ahead unless we change course. In Britain, however, any real opposition to the then Labour government's increasingly radical climate change policies of the early and mid-2000s essentially melted away with the election of the modernising David Cameron as leader of the Conservatives. Famously, Cameron travelled to the rapidly warming Arctic Circle to pose with Huskies for one of his first big photo ops, keen to show the British public, which at the time was more Tory sceptic than climate sceptic, that his party had changed for the better. We're all agreed that climate change is one of the greatest and most daunting challenges of our age. We have a moral imperative to act, and act now. But the big question is how? First, we need to understand... By the late 2000s, Cameron had created that rarest of things in the adversarial British parliamentary system, a genuine cross-party consensus. New Labour politicians planning radical laws committing Britain to binding emissions targets could hardly believe their luck. When the Climate Change Act passed, I think it passed with literally a handful of votes against... This is Ed Miliband, the former Labour leader who now acts as his party's shadow business secretary and spokesman on the COP26 summit. Back in 2008, he was serving in government as the Secretary of State who pushed the first ever Climate Change Act through Parliament. You could literally count it on the fingers of one or two hands, the number of people who voted against it. You know, maybe it might surprise your listeners for me to say this. I think David Cameron does deserve some credit for this, actually. Because, you know, for whatever reason, and you can be cynical about his motives, he made the green space competitive in the second half of the noughties by doing all the green husky stuff. He did push the Conservative Party to adopt this agenda. The issue had been deemed so important by Gordon Brown that he'd created a whole new Whitehall department, the Department for Energy and Climate Change, for Miliband to oversee. Well, yeah, I, I think it was probably created for the planet rather than for me. But in 2008, Gordon offered me the job and I jumped at the chance because, you know, it was an issue I cared passionately about. And honestly, setting up a new department is like a business. I mean, I, I basically sat in a broom cupboard for about six weeks, is my memory, <laughs> uh, trying to sort of run the country's energy policy from a broom cupboard, which is not so easy. And the big thing that I inherited, and I, I do want to give credit both to my brother and to Hillary Benn for this, was the climate change bill. And at that point, we were saying we were going to cut our emissions by 60% by 2050. But we then moved it on to 80% by 2050. And that then became the Climate Change Act. And in a way, so much else has followed from that. 
because that set the framework which the government is following now. It's now zero emissions by 2050. So, yeah, you know, I I kind of, I I feel like that was a very, very important moment in the evolution of the UK climate policy. And not just in the UK climate policy. I mean, it was pretty radical thing for any country in the world to be doing at that time. It was a radical thing. And actually, you know what? It still is a radical thing. I think it's quite interesting, this, and this is going to be one of the issues about Glasgow, which is that lots of countries are now following us to set long-term targets for reducing their carbon emissions. But many, many fewer of them are putting it into law, and even fewer with the kind of structure and systems that we have in place. We have these things in the UK And my brother deserves a lot of credit for this because it was his original conception, which is these five yearly carbon budgets, which means that you don't just set a target for ages away, but you have to then try and stick within your carbon budgets and you get reported on by the Climate Change Committee as to whether you're in those budgets or not. And I think that framework, you know, frameworks are kind of, it's like a boring word and it sounds pretty boring, but I think that framework is really important for sort of at least giving the chance and the semblance of keeping government honest and on the straight and narrow when it comes to climate policy. In 2009, Miliband was dispatched by Brown to Copenhagen for the next big COP summit, where nations needed to agree a successor to the Kyoto Agreement. By all accounts, it was a disaster, essentially putting off coordinated action until the much more successful Paris summit six years later. It was a nightmare. You know, for the political insiders, a summit has got a certain idea. A summit is basically lots of world leaders gather, they do a nice team photo, they issue some rather dry communique, which sort of doesn't really say very much and is like full of waffle. And then everybody goes home happy. I mean, that is like a million, million, million miles away from what the COP is like. Why? Because the COP is about countries deciding and offering their own kind of pledges about how they're going to change their economies and societies to take account of the climate crisis. It's every country of the world. And so the shadow of injustice between the developed and developing world, the fact that we in the developed world have developed on the basis of high carbon, and we're asking the developing world to go on the basis of low carbon, hangs over the summit. And crucially, it's got to be agreed by unanimity. Everybody's got to agree. If one or two countries object, you can sort of, as they say, gavel it through. So, you know, somebody just sort of pretends to not hear them. Now, Copenhagen, basically, it founded on the issue of mistrust between the developing and developed world and mistrust between the US and China. China was not at all with the program on the climate crisis in the way that they are much more now. There was great suspicion of the US because Obama had only just come in and the US had been under George W. Bush not really doing anything. And I don't think it was strategically brilliantly handled, to put it diplomatically, the summit. And so it ended up in the last two days, just a complete mess, really. Massive rows, wasn't clear there was going to be any kind of agreement. I was there as a UK climate representative. Gordon Brown flew in and the world leaders came at the end, which is quite the mistake, because it meant that, you know, it was like really was a last minute essay crisis situation. And in the end, we salvaged the three page or so Copenhagen Accord, which, I mean, at the time, it looked pretty rubbish. 
it did actually form the basis for what later happened at the successful Paris COP. But at the time, it looked like a complete mess. I hadn't slept for 24 hours or so. Gordon and I had stayed up all night. Gordon sort of took over the summit, essentially, in a kind of Gordon-esque way, um, because there was a vacuum of leadership. And he got this three-page agreement sort of rammed through a number of countries. And he then flew back to London. And his parting words to me were, okay, we've got this, don't screw it up now. Except he didn't use the word, don't screw it up. I think he might have used some ruder word than uh, than that. 12 hours later, I'm about to go to bed for the first time thinking, oh, it's all good. You know, we've at least got something out of this. And then I'm standing in my pants in the uh, in the hotel room. And then my uh, chief official, Pete Betts, rings me and says, it's all going down the pan. Countries are objecting. And at that point, I'm thinking... A, I'm worried about the climate crisis, but B, I'm even more worried about what Gordon's reaction is going to be. Um, as he's gone back to London thinking, you know, it's all fine and I've got an agreement out of this complete mess. And I mean, I have to say, you know, Ob- you could see on the look on Obama's face and other world leaders, they were thinking, what the hell have we walked into? You know, this is just a complete mess. Anyway, so then I rushed back to the conference venue. The UK microphone is for some reason on the blink. So I speak from the US microphone to try and salvage something and we did salvage something from that summit but i mean the world faced a big post copenhagen hangover which was a sense that we ducked the challenge of the climate crisis and it took a long time to recover and those forces that you've described you know us and china being very suspicious of each other the dynamic between the developing nations and the rich ones i mean they're all they're in spades today, aren't they? Uh, uh, look, I'm afraid we're not where we need to be in terms of Glasgow. And all of the forces are still there. Basically, no major country is really doing enough. I have to say, and this is not meant as party politics, I don't think the government's handled this summit brilliantly. I sort of think they went into it not realising how difficult it is. You know, we're the UK, we host lots of summits. Well, this isn't like any other summit because it's so substantive in in terms of what it's discussing. And I think Alok Sharma has done a decent job, but I think the problem is that he's been rather undermined by various forces in the rest of government that have cut overseas aid, done trade deals with Australia, allowing them to drop their temperature commitments, told others to power past coal when we're thinking about a new coal mine. And the combination of those things has rather undermined our role as as hosts, I'm afraid. How much sway do you know the Brits have in any of this? You've been there as a negotiator yourself. Uh, obviously, we've got a bit more when we're hosting, but at the end of the day, why would China or America or any of these big nations listen to what we're saying? The sway comes from, one, moral authority. I well remember Xi Jinping, who is the Chinese climate representative, and I think will be at this summit, a long-standing veteran of these negotiations, really smart guy, saying to me at Copenhagen, I don't mind listening to you giving me your views, because I think Britain is doing its bit. So a lot of this comes from your own moral authority as a country. Are you doing, as you say, consistent with what you're preaching, or are you sort of preaching one thing and practising another? The last great climate breakthrough came in Paris in 2015, when world leaders from all the major emitting nations agreed substantial cuts as part of a pathway to restrict global warming to 2 degrees, or possibly 1.5 degrees centigrade. If your listeners want to know, why did Paris succeed and Copenhagen failed? It's that there was an alliance in Paris of vulnerable countries, those small island states, countries like the Maldives that are literally going to disappear 
if warming goes above 1.5, with developed countries like ours that want to be ambitious. And there are like a, a sort of pincer movement that puts pressure on the big emitters who are a bit more worried, like China and others, to say, you've really got to act. That coalition hasn't really got going properly, even now with in relation to Glasgow, because the developing world is looking at the developed world and saying, well, you haven't delivered on the $100 billion of finance that you promised at Copenhagen. You know, There's all kinds of issues which you've not delivered on. So that strategy of getting that coalition together hasn't really worked this time. The official UK government view on how COP26 is going, you'll be unsurprised to hear, is somewhat different. I think the mood here is that something has shifted. COP26 spokeswoman Allegra Stratton. You know, a few months ago, for instance, you know, the idea of an Indian net zero target getting to net zero by mid-century was quite far-fetched. People in the COP unit who knew their stuff felt that you know, the Indians fiercely believed that they, they should be allowed to develop their economy and to lift people in India out of poverty. And they think the richer nations have had that time and enjoyed economic development and now are lecturing them. So actually, you have quite a broad consensus now with a huge coalition of countries that are now pushing for net zero 2050. We have to be clear eyed about the job we all have, which is to limit temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. When we went into this summit, temperature increase looked like it was at 2.7 degrees with all of the commitments made nowhere near what we needed. We don't know yet quite what all of the the announcements will mean in terms of bringing down that temperature increase. But we know that getting to 1.5 was never going to be possible in just one COP. It's such a massive job. Our job is to be as ambitious as possible to get as close to it as we can. So that's COP26. Kind of a success, kind of a failure kind of a too small step along a very difficult path, albeit one in the right direction. It's the story of every climate summit, to an extent, and will no doubt be repeated at COP27 in Egypt next year. But will the current direction of travel actually hold? In America, where the arguments over climate change remain highly politicised, the obvious question is what will happen next time the Democrats lose power. And if you believe urgent global action is needed, it's hard to be too optimistic about that. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry. President Trump, of course, pulled the US out of the Paris Agreement in 2017, only for President Biden to re-enter the deal earlier this year. But even back here in Britain, it's far from certain that the past 15 years or so of domestic consensus will hold. The government's net zero strategy, published last month, envisages some fairly radical changes to people's lives over the next decade or so. New sources of power, new cars, new ways of heating our homes will all be necessary. Exactly who is going to pay for it all, at a time when family budgets are increasingly squeezed, is a little unclear. Plenty of Tories are uneasy about the implications, and on Boris Johnson's own back benches, familiar forces are stirring. No one should be afraid of having their ideas tested. I mean, I've come on your podcast to have my ideas tested. And people who want to get near it to net zero by 2050 or faster or whatever should be willing to have their ideas tested. This is Steve Baker, 
the backbench Tory MP who led the hardline group of Brexiteers which brought down Theresa May in 2019. Having secured the Brexit outcome he wanted, Baker has now trained his guns on a new target, the government's net zero pledge. The net zero by 2050 target went through Parliament on a statutory instrument with 90 minutes of debate and no division. And that's pretty important because... What the chief scientist has now written in The Guardian about transformation at every level of our society really does amount to a revolution. And it went through on 90 minutes of debate and uh, no division on a statutory instrument. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. So one of the warnings that I've issued is that I think all the time the main political parties agree and such major transformations are proposed. I think there's a danger of a major insurgency, but another sort of Farage-style, UKIP-style insurgency to give people a choice. Like Tick Follows Tock, Baker is now helping organise a new group of what we might call net-zero sceptic Tory MPs, which he says already number 40 or so on the backbenches. He's also become a key figure at Tory grandee Nigel Lawson's climate sceptic pressure group, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, now rebranded as Net Zero Watch. So that's the gang of Tory hardliners in place. The well-funded Tufton Street think tank too. Notably, supportive commentators in the right-wing press have begun to describe net zero as a stitch-up by a distant global elite. Stop me, won't you, if the rhetoric sounds familiar. And if you've been paying any attention at all to British politics over the past ten years, you'll know exactly what comes next. It's very interesting that the idea of a referendum on net zero has emerged. Very interesting. I thought I never wanted to hear of another referendum. But the difference between this referendum on net zero and a referendum on Brexit is that we don't have to rush it. The government can formulate its plan for getting to net zero and put it to a referendum. Otherwise, where's the democratic consent? Because people haven't been given a choice at an election. The idea of a net zero referendum has emerged, as Baker puts it, in exactly the places you'd expect. In the minds of certain backbench Tory MPs, like, well, Steve Baker, and on the pages of the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Express. Indeed, Boris Johnson was asked by a Daily Express journalist just this week if he supported the idea of a net zero referendum. Naturally, he laughed it off. I think this country's probably had enough referendums to be going on with. But Baker, nevertheless, spies his chance. Well, the, the Prime Minister is a man of um, adaptable opinion. And were it to transpire that the public were not willing to bear the cost of net zero, and because COP26 has been a flop, and I think we've heard that India's not going to go for it till 2070, suppose China and India won't do it, and it becomes obvious to everyone that we can't make a practical difference and we're going to have to adapt anyway, then I expect we'll find that Boris Johnson changes his policy and goes for adaptation. And that would be, of course, the right thing to do. And for listeners that don't necessarily know what you mean, when you say adaptation, you're talking about adapting to a changing climate, are you? That is what adaptation means, yeah. At the moment, we're trying to mitigate, you know, we put people even talking about removing carbon from the atmosphere. We're talking about reducing the quantity of a trace gas in the atmosphere. It's a non-trivial thing to do and we'd better get it right. But adaptation, just so I'm clear, would mean the world getting used to the idea of a warmer world that's what that's what you're talking about as opposed to the so policy bear in mind yeah, so to be clear absolutely clear for your listeners it's not in my power to choose which way we go this is being decided at cop 26 and i think we're going to find at cop 26 that india and china aren't playing ball in which case what are we going to do because we're not going to do it by shutting down life in the united kingdom 
we're going to deal with it by making ourselves richer so that we've got more resources available to deal with the problems we face. Interestingly, Baker told me there is simply no point now in groups like his getting into the old early noughties debates about the science of global warming. I don't think the world's prepared to talk about science anymore. And we are entering into a kind of new era where things dare not be said. But from the point of view of practical politics, there just is no merit me trying to be a climate scientist. I'm not going to attempt to do it. I'm very interested. But what would be the purpose of me putting so much effort into climate science? There would be no purpose. And actually, any attempt to pivot back from what I'm saying about how to climate science is a diversion. It's an evasion. Why? Because we're not challenging the science. In a sense, when we ask, well, when are you going to do the boiler ban? Who's going to pay? How are we going to get all those heat pumps in? People pivoting back to, but we must because otherwise we'll all die. That is an evasion. All right, if you really believe that civilization is on the cusp of extinction, well, then you better come up with some viable plans quickly then. Richard Black, the former BBC journalist who's written extensively about the history of climate change scepticism, believes those opposed to radical action have been forced into a change of tack over recent years. It's definitely true that some of their arguments have been chopped away underneath them. I mean, in the book, I lay out eight canonical arguments that run from the climate isn't changing, it's changing, but humans aren't the cause. It's changing, but it won't be that bad. We should just adapt. Climate science is bent. If we switch to renewables, the lights will go out. No other country will do anything and it will ruin the economy. So the sort of later ones of those are still in play. You know, the feasibility of a grid powered by renewables is still very much on the agenda. Oh, but why should we do anything if China won't is still massively there. But that basic stuff about the climate isn't changing. I think that's just had to go because eventually the weight of evidence mounts up so high that you just you, you, you look increasingly ridiculous if you try to cling on to that. I asked Steve Baker if his group of net zero sceptics has enough clout in the Commons to actually force the government to change course. And no, absolutely not. There is no question whatsoever of winning votes in this Parliament on the issue of climate change. There are well over 40 MPs in the group. It's a group that's grown faster than any other group I've done. But 40s would be enough to overturn the majority if the opposition would vote with us, but the opposition won't vote with us. They want the government to go harder and faster. But of course, when when the act of pursuing these policies produces fuel poverty, the opposition will continue to want to have more spent avoiding fuel poverty, and they'll want us to go harder and faster with climate change. And I think sensible voters will realise that the fuel poverty has been caused by the climate change policies, and we've got to start making real choices with real trade-offs. It's going to be a long march for you then, by the sounds of it. I love long marches. It's funny how many of them I keep winning on. And people don't like it, but they better get used to it. So while the politics and the arguments around climate change ebb and flow, the struggle remains essentially the same. Both inside the room, where world leaders juggle conflicting pressures as they inch towards a solution, and outside the room, where the sceptics have given up rubbishing the science and now ask just how much this transformation is going to cost. The good news out of Glasgow for those demanding radical action is that for the first time in a long time, all the major carbon-emitting nations are, for the moment, essentially in agreement on the science and on the steps we need to take, albeit with very differing views about the pace required. 
The next big question is whether this fragile coalition can hold long enough to deliver the pledges being made, or whether the domestic realities of what net zero will actually entail will breathe new life into the climate sceptic movement. It's a political struggle we'll be watching for years to come, but with this one, the stakes could hardly be higher. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.